What's up, God speak? Hey, good morning. Hey. Hey. <laughs> How's it going? Amen. I'm just distracted by this cool truck out here. It's really cool. Uh, anyways, <laughs> welcome to God Speak. Excited that you guys are here. Uh, we're in for a serious treat this morning. Uh, Pastor Rob will be back tomorrow. You notice how I didn't say Pastor Rob's not here today. I said he will be back. It's just like I'm trying to make you see the positive things and everything. <laughs> Pastor Rob will be back tomorrow afternoon. And we're going to do, when he gets back, we're going to do a pre-election prayer night. And so tomorrow here in the sanctuary at 6 p.m., we're inviting everyone back here as we lift up the election in prayer. Amen? Yeah. It's important. Um, the, the hardest prayer that, that I, I prayed this week was, God, I know exactly what I want, but, oh, but if it's not what you want, I don't understand how it couldn't be, but if it's not, I give it to you. Of course I can't. I don't understand it. But, but uh, that's the point, right? His ways are not mine. And if they were, then we'd be in trouble. So we're, we're going to lift up the election and this country in prayer tomorrow at 6 p.m. You had maybe, you didn't. Um, we're going we're gonna to pass some Bibles out. Um, actually, no, we're not going to pass Bibles out. We don't need those this morning, even though we do need them. But we're, our, our guest speaker is amazing. He has all the Bible memorized, and he's just going to recite it for you. Uh, no, but we're, uh, the ushers are going to pass out the, these uh, little bulletins that we're going to use tomorrow at the prayer service. So on one side of it, you'll see a, a, a request, a, a prayer request, but really, we just want you, if you can't make it, we want you to write out your prayer on this and drop it in the tithe and offering box so that we can read it to the live stream and let everyone know that we're all in agreement in, agreement in these prayers. So uh, if you can't make it tomorrow at 6, fill, fill out this prayer form and drop it in the agape box. Also, if you don't, wanna, if, if you don't know how to write, you can, <laughs> you can email us at in, info at godspeak.com. There are no pens on your chairs or anything because I figured... If you want to write it down, then you probably have a pen on you. And if you don't have a pen, you probably know how to use an email. So you're fine. Like, well, it, we're going uh, gonna to read these tomorrow at the prayer, um, prayer night at 6 p.m. So show up if you can. If you can't, that's okay. Just fill it out and drop it in the um, tithe and offering boxes. If you're wondering why I'm saying the same thing over and over again, because last service everyone's like, wait, what? Where do I put what? What do I write what? <laughs> I can say that about them because they're not here anymore. So uh, today is special. So t- today is November 1st. It's the, the, last, the last day of 40 Days for Life. And so this makes what we're going to do this morning uh, so um, profoundly ordained by God. And as we, we approach the end of 40 Days for Life, as we've been praying for 40 days um, for the unborn, uh, it culminates today. And we're so blessed to have Seth Gruber here, who is, if you've seen him, no, I didn't say Seth Gruber, I said Seth Gruber. Uh, it, we're, we're blessed to have him here this morning, and I know a lot of pro-life activists. I know a lot of people who know a lot about the pro-life movement and know uh, and, and are very knowledgeable, but none like this man. And I'm, I'm so encouraged that you guys get the chance to hear him. He's been on a handful of live streams, uh, but he's here in person, and and the other side of your prayer, your prayer form, there's a question thing, a little place where you can write a question. So 
if you during this as he's speaking, if you're going, if you're struggling, if you, if if you have an issue, whatever it is, if if you're in agreement, if you have just a question, how do I do this? How do I do that? I understand what you said. Can you say that a little slower? Whatever, however. You, if you have something that you want us to address, please write it down. Drop it in the tithe and offering box. Seth and I will, will collect it all, and we're going to do a Q&A on our live stream tonight at 7. So an opportunity for you guys to ask all of the questions that you might have as you're hearing him. Um, we encourage you to write it down or just email info at godspeak.com. And then tune in tonight on our YouTube channel at 7 p.m., and you'll get to hear the answer to all of the questions that you guys ask um, and it, it, we have, from the end of the service of so three, four, five, six, seven, we got about four hours to, to like study up on all the questions you guys ask. But no, uh, I, I'm sure he won't even need to. So this man is amazing. If it, as you know that this past season has been really hard for me and my family. And if you didn't know, my wife m- miscarried our, uh, our son at 17 weeks, uh, about three weeks ago. And it was, it's been one of the m- most difficult times in our lives. Um, but we had the, the, the blessing to be able to actually deliver him. So my, we delivered him, and we got to hold him. We got to hold Theodore. And he's tiny, like fit literally in, in one of my hands. And I got to take a nap with him. I got to hang out with him for a little bit. And, his, and I understand. Like some of you guys are like, that's kind of weird. Like I know, I know that this is just his body, but it's a, a physical representation of God's perfect creation. And... And in the testimony of his little life in the hospital, as we're, as we were handing him to to get his little his little footprint, his tiny little three quarter inch footprint done, and all this, every, as it go, it's this this baby's body is going from hand to hand. This is a baby. This is a baby. This is a baby. Like, wait, that's a yes. This is a baby. My science book tells me no. This is a baby, and. I'm so blessed that Seth is here because this has been the first service was remarkable, and as this, I thought I was pro-life before I could hold this 17-week-old baby, my baby, in my hands. And from that moment, my life has changed. And I, I pray that t- today your life is changed by what Seth has to share. And uh, I'm stoked, buddy. Come on out. Welcome, Seth Gruber. Good morning. How you doing? Wow, what a crazy Sunday, huh? Man. You know, every election is the most important election to the unborn because it's legal to kill them. But this election is important for a lot of other reasons as well, and the very soul of this country is up for grabs. But the soul of our country has been rotting for some time because when a country murders its own human beings who are innocent without any proper justification whatsoever and celebrates it as economic rights and reproductive justice, that country will probably continue to get every other other right wrong. And you're watching that play out in real time right now, aren't you? So I'm really happy to be here with you guys, but you know, my heart's a little heavy because I continue to watch so many brothers and sisters in the Lord in this country, some of them my friends that I went to college with, completely fold and refuse to act politically to protect God's pre-born image bearers. But it's so wonderful to be here with you guys. It's also wonderful to see your faces and smiles, by the way. So I just uh, flew back from Michigan last night, and I was speaking in Michigan, and I I got to speak at a Christian high school. It was incredible. I was actually able to book a high school because they're all shut down. But this Christian high school was open, but they made all the students wear masks, and they made me wear a mask, which I was happy to do because otherwise I wouldn't be able to communicate these ideas to them. But uh, I didn't know what they thought, you know? I didn't know if they were like, 
oh, I hate you, pro-life speaker. Or if they were like, wow, you know, I can't see anyone's faces. It's so different. So praise God that you're here, that you uh, have your faces free, and that I can see you smiling back at me. So thank you for having me. Um, by the way, I'm going I'm to tell you guys a secret, all right, if you don't tell any other churches, okay? I think Rob and this church are my favorite church. <laughs> yeah, and if you guys watched uh, the first uh, fireside chat we did um, a few weeks ago, you know, I was telling Pastor Rob, I said, you know, I feel like I go around justifying my career to everyone. And oftentimes I'm justifying it to pastors. And it's exhausting sometimes. And he said, you know why? Because you've never been to this church. So thank you for having me and thank you for your pastoral team and your leadership. Your team does such a good job here. Your pastors do such a good job at preaching the full counsel of God and placing the church within a larger historical context. So I assume you know who this man is, but his name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you haven't read Eric Metaxas's phenomenal biography on Bonhoeffer called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy, what a biography, by the way, um, then I encourage you to read it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was assassinated for his assassination attempt on a man named Adolf Hitler wasn't obeying the governing authorities. In fact, he resolved to murder the leader of Germany in order to try to save Jews. Wow. But Eber, uh, Bonhoeffer and some of his friends started a church called the Confessing Church during the Holocaust. Maybe you're familiar with them. You know why they called themselves the Confessing Church? That was a tacit slap on the face to every other Christian in Germany who was pontificating about loving their neighbor but were folding and obeying the German dictates to stay silent on the slaughter of image bearers. Martin Niemöller, Eberhard Bethke, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they called themselves the Confessing Church in order to quite literally insinuate that everyone else, all y'all out there, brothers and sisters in Germany, you might not be Christians. Whoa! That's why they call themselves a confessing church. They're saying, we're confessing Christ. And whatever Savior you're confessing, if you're silent on the genocide of image bearers, it might not be Jesus, and it might not be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful thing to insinuate to brothers and sisters in Christ. Can't say that today on abortion, though, right? Hmm. You know, Martin Luther... Not uh, King Jr., Martin Luther. Reformation Day was yesterday, by the way. Martin Luther once said, if I preach every portion of the truth of God and exposit every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be Steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. Our brothers and sisters are flinching and folding like a stack of cards. And I don't think it is unfair of us to do the same thing that Bonhoeffer and Eberhard Bethke and Martin Niemöller did by insisting that if you can't vote against and defend the genocide of baby image bearers, then whatever gospel you're confessing, it might not be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Now, we actually have a lot to learn from these men because we have many of their writings, don't we? So Eberhard Bethke has a journal, and in it he was wrestling with the situation that Bonhoeffer and members of the Confessing Church in Germany found themselves in. And his words bear a lot of, they bear a lot of truth to our time today. So I want to read you what Eberhard Bethke had to say in sort of wrestling with the situation that the church found themselves in while a government was genociding innocents and telling the church that they were non-essential. Here's what Eberhard Bethke had to say. Bonhoeffer introduced us in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. The levels of confession, and by confession he means proclamation, he doesn't mean confessing sins. The levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated an increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer himself. We now realize that mere confession, mere proclamation, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers, even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted, and even though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday. During the whole time, the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. Why should it? Because that gospel they were preaching didn't pose a threat to the government in question, did it? Hmm. Thus, we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. Let me tell you what that means. I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to act politically to protect the unborn. I'm pro-life, but I won't vote to end their genocide. So German Christians had an orthodoxy that was dead because it didn't lead to orthopraxy. Correct belief was not leading to correct action. I think the Bible has something to say about that. Your faith should evidence itself in works. Unfortunately, this is an adequate diagnosis of where American evangelicalism is today. Our, our resistance to the forces of evil, and what's more evil than killing a baby that's completely innocent, created in the image of God, for too long the American church's resistance to that evil has only manifested itself in words. Confession, I'm pro-life, brother. Actually, Seth, you know, we give the local pregnancy resource center director five minutes once a year before church, and we make one donation. Very, oh, yeah, that's very pro-life. Well done. Check the box. Feel good about yourself. As Greg Cunningham once said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable, while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of people who say they oppose abortion, who confess, are not lifting a finger to stop it. And those that do lift a finger do just enough to salve the conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. Whew. Stinging rebuke on the church of Christ. Our confession ought to always evidence itself through actions, through resistance, through doing something. That's what made the German church's failure so scandalous because they were pontificating the right words and refusing to act politically, refusing to sacrifice to save image bearers being genocided. Confessing pro-life beliefs, but refusing to resist the evil of abortion. And we continue to see this type 
of divorce between orthodoxy and orthopraxy coming from major Christian leaders and pastors who we thought were on our side. Pastor Tim Keller, who wrote on Facebook a month ago the following. The Bible tells me abortion is a sin and a great evil. Oh, great. Confession. But it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortions in this country. By the way, I'm, I'm quoting. Therefore, he says, when it comes to voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. He says, Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, or every Christian must vote for. Hmm. Liberty of conscience. To vote for either party, because God doesn't care about your vote. Despite the fact that I thought the Christian worldview was that we're stewards of everything God has given us and we're supposed to use it in a way that honors him as a fragrant offering and sacrifice of the creator of the universe, but not your vote. Not the political sphere. So according to Keller's reasoning, friends, supporting the Democratic Party of the 1850s must have been acceptable because the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective at decreasing or ending slavery in this country. What? According to Keller's reasoning, supporting Hitler and his regime must have been acceptable for German Christians because they had liberty of conscience too. To support genocide? No, I'm sorry, you don't have liberty of conscience to do that as a Christian. Now, if Keller rejects these suggestions as permissible for the Christian, which I guarantee you he does, but he is indeed pro-life, then his own argument is rendered false. Why? Because abortion is wrong for the same exact reasons that slavery and the Holocaust were wrong. In each circumstance, a government, your political betters, denied personhood to an entire class of human beings, image bearers of God, and then dehumanizes them through euphemistic bigotry in order to justify their mistreatment and slaughter. slaughter. Blobs of tissue, gently removing the pregnancy, reproductive health care, reproductive justice, women's rights, abortion is health care. And yet, Tim Keller has written in previous writings in a very popular New York Times article that constantly gets shared on Facebook because it's uh, very woke, where he blasts Christians in the 1850s for refusing to act politically to end slavery. He doesn't blast them for voting for the Democratic Party, by the way. He critiques them purely on the basis of their political abdication, of just opting out of the political process. You know what Tim Keller said to Christians in the 1850s who refused to vote for either party because of their witness? He said, to not be political is to be political, and in doing so, you were supporting the social status quo. I'm quoting verbatim. What was the social status quo? Slavery. So if it was a moral wrong for Christians to opt out of the political process in the 1850s because only one political party was reasonably situated to end slavery, wouldn't it follow that voting for the Democratic Party of the 1850s, who launched a domestic terrorist arm called the KKK, would have been more wrong? Of course! But then on abortion, he says, well, it's a sin and a great evil. I'll confess the right beliefs. But you actually have liberty of conscience to vote for whatever party you want today. So apparently the blood of unborn image bearers doesn't run deep enough or hot enough to warrant Keller's political intervention, a political intervention that he demanded Christians in the 1850s did have. Keller has forgotten what the wonderful British abolitionist William Wilberforce taught us when he said that a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. And you know, Wilberforce was kind of just paraphrasing scripture, wasn't he? 1 John 3, 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. 
Don't pontificate about orthodoxy and refuse to adopt orthopraxy. Don't say that these children are image bearers, but say they don't deserve political protection, and I won't use my pulpit to encourage Christians to be salt and light in the culture and to restrain evil and promote righteousness. Don't say that. James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith should evidence itself in works. But unfortunately, it seems that John Piper has joined Tim Keller in enrolling in the College of Wokeism and wrote an article recently arguing that there is basically a moral equivalency between the individual sin of pride and the cultural sin of genocide. They're kind of just morally equivalent. Our president, he's really prideful. He's really bombastic. He's really self-congratulatory. So, I mean, that sin leads to death eventually too, pride. So, I mean, that's kind of morally equivalent to like ripping off the limbs of one million babies every year and funding it with your tax dollars and trying to force pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists to perform abortions against their will or be fired. It's kind of just the same. So, therefore, for my witness, I won't vote at all. I just got some texts from brothers of mine, some of my best friends that I went to Westmont College with, defending this very premise just before I preached in first service. Can't vote for Trump because my witness. I care so deeply about my witness, Seth. That's why I'll sacrifice savable babies on the altar of my witness. But, you know, I told him that sword cuts both ways, you know. Because do you know how many non-Christians I've met who have no respect for the bride of Christ or the church because they pontificate about the image bearers of God in the womb who their savior once was and that doesn't adopt personal responsibility or political responsibility to end the genocide of other baby image bearers who dwell in a womb that Christ once dwelled in. Many pagans hate the church and they have no respect for Christians because we confess and don't resist. So if you want to talk about your witness being harmed through voting for a certain political candidate, that sword cuts both ways. And if you refuse to engage politically, then you're going to be harming your witness to others. Listen, there's only so much we can do to control our witness, meaning how the world sees us. There's only so much we can do. We're called to preach truth in love. Those have to go together, amen. It doesn't give us the right to go around gratuitously offending people. Grace and truth. Those have to go together. But beyond that, there's nothing we can do to control our witness after that. People hate Christians because we think marriage is a union of one man and one woman. Should we not vote to protect that because we're harming our witness? Christians think that sodomy is a sin. Should we encourage that or opt out of that conversation because of our witness? People think that Christians are bigots for homeschooling their children and teaching them that marriage is a union of one man and one woman. I guess we shouldn't do that to our children because we're harming our witness. There's only so much we can do to control our witness. We're called to be salt and light in the culture, preach grace and truth, seasoned with salt, and leave the results to God. We are not the Holy Spirit. We cannot contrive the situation in which repentance of sin is brought or people come to the Savior. My witness. According to Piper's reasoning, if Abraham Lincoln had instead been Donald Trump with all his pride, boastfulness, and rude tweets, but was promising to end the scourge of slavery, he wouldn't have voted for him. Because pride is morally equivalent to genocide. And the individual sin of pride is really just the same as the cultural sin of slaughtering innocents. Try explaining your political piety to the whipped men and women whose enslavement and lashes don't bother you enough to vote for a sinful man who will free them. 
because Stephen Douglas was nice, even though he was running for the Democratic ticket to enshrine slavery against Lincoln. But he was much nicer. <laughs> but perhaps that's the point, brothers and sisters. Perhaps that's the point. John Piper would never defend political neutrality in 1860 because the cries and bondage of God's image bearers crying out to him would override any concern with matters of personal sin from the president. However, the silent screams of our preborn brothers and sisters will never reach John Piper's ears because they're silent screams. So he won't have to give an account to them as to why he refuses to vote for their protection or use his massive pulpit and influence to encourage Christians to do something so simple, so simple. Pencil in the box that will protect the preborn. But this moral and spiritual confusion on abortion, friends, has unfortunately become par for the course among many Christian leaders and pastors today who, like Keller, believe they have no duty or obligation to prevent the slaughter of God's image bearers in a womb that Christ once dwelled in. And I can testify to this confusion because I go around speaking in faith-based high schools and I have students staring daggers at me. I go speak in youth groups and have students ticked off at me. Why won't we do for good what the other side will do for evil? You know how important reaching the next generation is to our opponents? Very important to them. That's why Santa Barbara Unified School District just released something called Teen Talk or something like this, Healthy Teen Talk. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, except it encourages radical sex acts and gives you an abortion clinic locator finder online so you can find your local abortion clinic and then teaches underage students how to get an abortion without parental consent. This is why Planned Parenthood earlier this year launched 50 Planned Parenthood pop tents on 50 Los Angeles Unified Public Schools to provide a place for sexual health care and counseling for young people, also giving them birth control and because in California, if you're over 15, you can get the abortion pill, but without parental consent, they'd be happy to provide that to your young people as well. And then teach you how to get around parental consent laws. Hmm. I think they understand the importance of reaching the next generation with a certain worldview, because they understand that the battle for the future of America is the battle for the posterity of the country. Win them while you're, they're young, and they'll serve you forever. This is why the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza, teamed up with Cecile Richards, that white racist and former president of Planned Parenthood, who last year launched a political training action organization called Supermajority, with the express intent and goal of training up two million young women to be political abortion activists leading up to the 2020 election. I think they care about the minds of young people. You know why the pro-life movement has never had the church on our side? We've never had the pastors on our side. You know why we've never had the pastors on our side? We've never had the institutions or schools that they're educated in. There's no type of theological training from the full counsel of God and the theological truths that undergird the pro-life movement that are articulated in Christian colleges, in seminaries, so that we understand our political duty to protect the unborn in the same way that Christians had a political duty to protect the Jew and the black. None of these ideas are discussed in Christian colleges. Why? Do I know this? Because I went to Westmont College, a Christian college whose motto is Christ preeminent in all things, except the prenatal Christ and every baby created in the image of the prenatal Christ. My alma mater hires pro-abortion professors, as long as you sign a statement of faith, as long as you confess, pontificate about the right ideas, which mean nothing practically. Can you imagine if Christian colleges were hiring people who signed a statement of faith, but believed that we should re-enshrine re segregation? 
how quickly would those Christian colleges be defunded? And would parents cease sending their students there? But if you hold the same worldview, which is that some humans are not persons, and so therefore they don't deserve political protection, then it's fine. You can teach and shape the minds of young people who will then enter positions of influence, either in the pulpit or shaping the minds of your young people with ridiculous, bigoted ideas. Why won't we do good for good what the other side will do for evil? The very institution with the theological grounding to be predisposed to protecting lives. The church would be the very institution you would think that would be on the front lines because our Savior and his word teaches us that every human being is created in the image of God. And then that same Christ entered human history and took on fetus flesh to identify with us in a womb that he knit together wouldn't that beautiful truth provide the theological firepower for us to be on the front lines of defending life? I guess not. So to engage in resistance and influence the culture for life, Christians must bring moral, spiritual, and political clarity to the issue of abortion. And unfortunately, I have to go through each of those because I can point out a sort of group of Christians in America who will agree with me on moral clarity but not on spiritual clarity. They'll agree with me on moral and spiritual clarity, but not on political clarity. And I'm going to make the case that these all go together. There's a spiritual thread that goes through all of these. So how do we develop moral clarity on the issue of abortion? In short, how do you defend life in the public square, in the, ecclesi in the ecclesia, to people who hate you, who hate the word of God, and are not going to abandon their pro-choice worldview and become pro-life because you cited them Psalm 139. Now, that's one of my favorite verses, and it's objectively true. But it's not going to persuade an atheist, apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to change their views. Listen, all truth is God's truth. So we're going to find evidence of God's truth in every sphere of human knowledge. So how do we make our case for life? How do we bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion? This is important because the other side insists, what? Abortion is a deeply complex moral issue, right? Very complex. So therefore, it's best left to women's own conscience. Have you ever heard, don't impose your morality on others? But if it's your morality that I shouldn't impose morality, that's a moral view. So don't impose your morality that I shouldn't impose morality on me. I thought we weren't supposed to do that. Oh, interesting, interesting. So they insist that abortion is deeply complex. But these are the same people who tell us that the unborn is an insensate blob of tissue and abortion gently suctions out the lining of the uterus. But if the unborn is morally indistinguishable from a polyp, then abortion is not complex. Who, 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 who comes home from removing a tumor and has friends saying, oh my gosh, that's incredible. You practiced your reproductive justice and women's rights. Nobody thinks that that's complex because if it's just a polyp or a tumor, then it doesn't have rights because it's not a person. So isn't it funny that the people who say abortion is deeply complex so Christians shouldn't speak on that issue, they're the same people saying that the unborn is a blob of tissue with no rights. Eternity's written on the heart of man. God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. Even the people who hate God can't help but acknowledge a still small voice that says maybe there's something going on here. Maybe it's more than just a blob of tissue. So how do we make a case for life for our unborn neighbors? Because I know you guys are people of life. But I was raised in the church. I was raised in the pro-life movement. And I realized as a senior in high school, I didn't have responses. I didn't have answers to the people in my life who were challenging my position. 
So I want to give you intellectual firepower and fill your tanks with jet fuel so you can take off as ambassadors for the unborn in a culture that needs you now more than ever before. We answer the question, what is the unborn, to restore moral clarity to the issue of abortion. And it's the only question that matters, because you can't answer the question, can I kill this, until you answer the question, what is it? What is the unborn? That's the most fundamental question. And it's a question avoided like wildfire by our opponents, because they know that the answer is not conducive to their political views. Because science is on the side of the pro-life movement. So what does the science of embryology teach us? If you want to answer the question, what is the unborn, it's already been answered for you. We've known this for decades. The science of embryology teaches that from the moment of conception, sperm and egg meet, boom, new human being. From that moment, there's a distinct living and whole human being. These are not terms I've cherry-picked to make the pro-life position sound more intellectually tenable. These are the terms you'll find in any university textbook on embryology or biology that hasn't banned inconvenient scientific facts that might lead students to become pro-life, of course. Distinct, living, and whole. Distinct means separate, right? Unique. You know what distinct means. It means I'm not you and you're not me. There's only one of you. So if the science says that the unborn is distinct, what does that mean as it's applied to the issue of abortion? I guess the body in her body is not her body. If the child's distinct, and we know this at a self-evident level, don't we? Because do we really admit that pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes? two brains, two hearts, two different DNA codes, potentially two different blood types existing in the same body at the same time. Wow. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, <laughs> now pregnant women have male genitalia. Now, of course, the left says, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> men can be women, women can be men. And of course, that's patently insane, right? So the unborn is distinct. They're living because dead things don't grow and the child is growing. Actually, the child's developing their own internal growth from within. And if you've been pregnant, you know this, right? My wife's eight months pregnant. She doesn't rub her belly and say, baby, don't forget to grow today. She doesn't tell me to come over and whisper to her uterus, baby, don't forget to grow. Because they develop themselves from within, independent of the wishes of their parents. So they're living and they're whole. What does it mean to be a whole human being? Don't confuse wholeness with development, okay? We have a kind of bad tendency to do that. We use this term like a whole human being, like a grown human being, a developed human being with cognitive functions and abilities. That's not what it means to be a whole human being. A whole human being is simply one who has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. So I'm 29 and I'm not 40. But my wife recently found out that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. And she said, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. She's really holding out hope for me. So you see, there's aspects of my development I have not realized yet, right? Does that mean I'm not a whole human being now? Of course not. There are aspects of your children or teenagers' development that they have not realized yet. Does that mean they're not whole human beings now? Well, those with you, with you teenagers, don't answer that question. So we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But when did that continuum begin? The moment of conception. Okay, we don't become human. We don't become more human. We're simply human or not. And at the moment of conception, that's a human being. The only difference is in degrees. The degree of difference between our development is different because we're all different ages. So we all differ in the degree of our development, but that doesn't mean we're not a human, okay? A whole human being. Just like a Polaroid photo, when the photo gets spit out, do you see the entire photo yet? No, but everything that's necessary for that photo to realize its full growth and development is already present when the photo gets spit out. We just can't see it yet. That's what I mean when I say from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a whole human being who already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as one of us, even if we can't see him or her yet. They just need time.
That's what it means to be a whole human being. That's what the science teaches us. So when people say it's not a human, you can just call their bluff as science deniers. It's funny that the pro-choice movement claims to be the pro-science movement, right? Science! Science says that the sun monster will kill us in five years. Science says that babies are not persons. No, actually, the science of embryology says human life begins at the moment of conception. I'm sorry, that's not conducive to your political ideology. That's what the science teaches us. Now, you can get most pro-choice friends in your life to admit the unborn is human. You really can, because they don't want to look that scientifically ignorant. So they'll say, okay, okay, pro-lifer, it's a human. But here, actually, did you know? It's actually not a person. <laughs> Now, anytime someone tells you that, this is the first question I want you to ask them. What's the difference? And then I want you to ask them, have you ever met a human that's not a person? <laughs> Because I haven't. Now, your historical blinkers should also be going off, right? Because is this the first time a government denied rights of personhood to human beings? No. The practitioners of genocide have always separated the, ter the term human from person in order to convince the society in question that the class of human beings they were dehumanizing and killing were subhuman, or persons, not persons. The Hiskerich, the German Supreme Court, said that Jews were humans but not persons. In Dred Scott, we said that the black was human but not a person. And in 1973, our government said the same thing about the unborn that we said to our black brothers and sisters, which is that they're humans but not persons. Every time those terms are separated, disastrous consequences follow, usually the slaughter of millions of innocent hu of human beings. Hmm. So we would use the term human and person synonymously. Human, person, person, human, it's the same thing. But those with a political incentive to rid themselves of their reproductive instincts so that they can have sex without responsibilities will create categories of human non-persons to justify their behavior that the slaughter of these children is actually acceptable because they don't have personhood rights. So, we make a human equality argument for the rights of the child. And this is important because the other side actually couches their language in equality, don't they? Do they say abortion or feticide? No, they almost never use those terms. What do they say? Reproductive health care, reproductive justice, feminism, women's rights, abortion is health care, health care is a human right. They couch their position in the language of equality. But the pro-life position is the position of human equality. So we're going to couch our language and argument for the rights of the child in the language of equality. And it goes like this. We're going to make the case that any argument used to justify the killing of the unborn cannot be confined to the womb. Whatever argument you accept to justify killing the unborn can be turned right around to justify killing you as a born person. Because the unborn differs from us in the same ways we differ from one another. So here's our case for the human equality and rights and personhood of the unborn child. There is no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage in the womb. I'll shorten that sentence, okay? There is no value-giving difference between unborn humans and born humans that makes it okay to kill unborn humans. Does that make sense? Now, does that mean there's no differences between fetuses and teenagers? Of course not. If your mother still has a 16-week photo of you in the womb, and we held it up to your face today, could we identify any differences? Of course. I'm not saying there's no differences. I'm saying none of them matter, guys. And whatever differences exist between the unborn and the born, those differences cannot be used to justify killing the unborn, because we differ from one another in the same ways the unborn differs from us. 
So what are those differences, by the way? This is actually important because did you know it's actually the very differences between unborn people and born people that are used as a justification for abortion? Just like racists said, blacks are so different. Come on, only a Republican rube would believe that there's any human equality between whites and blacks. This is what Nazis said about Jews. They're so different. Different religion. And then utilizing dehumanizing caricatures to show that these people are not deserving of rights. So different than us. But the only thing we have in common is what? A human nature. And when did that human nature begin? The moment of conception. Here are the differences between unborn people and born people so you can identify them when they're used to dehumanize the unborn. They're summarized in the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. This is a difficult concept for us in Southern California, isn't it, where we can't even spell the word snow, uh, but work with me. <laughs> SLED stands for size, level of development, environment, and dependency. Okay, you ready? Yes, the unborn child is smaller than us, but newborn children are smaller than toddlers, and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. I'm six foot three, so if you're under that, I'm sorry, but you're not a person, and if I kill you, I could call it reproductive health care. I mean, it makes sense if you really think about it, because in killing you, I'm kind of like preventing you from reproducing, so that's why I called it reproductive health care. But are we valuable because of our size? No, we're valuable because of a human nature, right? Because size comes in varying degrees, but a human nature doesn't. What about level of development? Yes, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, but newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Your parents are more developed than you. Your children are less developed than you. Our grandparents are more developed than all of us. So I guess grandparents can kill their grandchildren because grandparents are more developed. Actually, the difference in development between the toddler and the grandparent is significantly more than the difference between the fetus and the toddler. The only thing we have in common is the human nature. But the pro-choicer says you can kill the baby in the womb because they're not viable, they can't feel pain, they're not aware of their own existence, they're not conscious. But what is necessary for an unborn child to realize those capacities and functions? A level of development. <laughs> they will realize those capacities given time, just like there are aspects of some of our development we haven't realized yet, but we will given time. So if we can kill babies in the womb for being smaller and less developed, can I kill you for being smaller and less developed than me? because we're both humans. What about environment, location? They say you can kill babies in the womb because they're in the womb, because they're in the wrong location. So the Democratic Party once said that blacks are the property of their plantation owners whose land they live on, and now babies are the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. Where one is has no bearing on who one is, as Frank Beckwith says. But our American abortion law says you can slaughter a baby through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all, because it's in the wrong location. Because it's in a womb. By the way, we're all former womb dwellers. That's where we all came from. And thankfully, we made it out alive because our mothers made the right choice. You were not met with forceps as you were slipping through the birth canal. And as Ronald Reagan once said, it's very strange. I've noticed that everyone that is for abortion has already been born. And our friends go, eh, 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 that's such a stupid, pithy argument. No, it's actually very ironic. It's actually very ironic you sanctioned the slaughter of humans in a womb you once came from and weren't killed in because your mother made the right choice. So apparently, unborn children are insensate blobs of tissues and non-persons because they're located six inches away. But you probably don't know any pro-choice people who defend infanticide. 
you probably don't know any pro-choice people who defend partial birth abortions, which by the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg worked very hard to keep legal or re-legalize in two different legal decisions that went before the Supreme Court. But she's the feminist slay queen, right? Let me tell you something. You can't defend the civil rights of born women if you sanction slaughtering them in the womb. If women's rights exist at all, they exist from the moment they're women, which is the moment they're human, which is the moment of conception. Oh, inconvenient truth. So our country says that a baby is a non-person because it's in the womb. So what does that mean as it's applied to partial birth abortions, you know, where you, you can cover your children's ears right now if you'd like, where you pull a child out by their legs in the second or third trimester through a forced delivery, and while their legs are flailing around outside the birth canal, but their head and shoulders are still in the birth canal, you stick scissors into the back of the neck while the child's in the birth canal, you open those scissors, and then you stick a vacuum suction catheter tube, and you suction the brains out. It's the closest thing to the French guillotine for unborn babies. Why do I even bring that up? Because if where one is does have a bearing on who one is, I guess those children were half persons. The legs and the buttocks were persons, but the head and shoulders weren't. Remember, because the, the birth canal confers personhood. I've been told that the fetus fairy flies up and sprinkles magical personhood-conferring fairy dust on the child as it exits the birth canal, because infanticide is illegal. So the second that that last toe leaves the birth canal, it's a person? What? This is wild! Where one is has no bearing on who one is. What about dependency? We can kill the baby because it's dependent on the mother. Does that dependency stop after birth? What happens if you leave an infant in a crib and do nothing? Oh, they die. Oh, and then the parents are charged with infanticide. Oh, but what if the mom says to the judge, my body, my choice, my breasts, my choice, I don't have to nurse a child that's dependent on me because it's dependent on me. Would that argument hold up in a court of law? I think not. In fact, what would the judge probably say? Mother, father, it was actually your child's dependency and neediness that demanded a greater parental obligation from you to care for them. The society will be judged in how it treats the least of these, as Mother Teresa once said. So if we can kill babies because they're dependent on their mothers, can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, caretakers, kidney machines? Insulin, life support. Like the child in the womb, they're dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. Welcome to eugenics. The dream of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who hobnobbed with the founders of the American Eugenics Society and wanted to get rid of the infirm and those who are needy as dregs on society. And you have Adolf Hitler in a jail after his failed coup attempt in Munich, writing fan mail to the founders of the American Eugenics Society who were BFFs with Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. When you dehumanize life at one stage, you'll dehumanize it at another. If you deny the right to life to unborn children because they're dependent, you'll apply that same botched, bigoted ideology to people outside the womb. And it becomes all about us, doesn't it? Our right to just make difficult life problems go away. And if that difficult life problem happens to be a human being, so be it. So notice, I've just made a case for the humanity and equality and value of the unborn child without citing Bible verses to make my case. But am I communicating biblical truth nonetheless? Yes, that these are intrinsically valuable human beings from the moment they're human. Moral clarity. And yet many pastors today will acknowledge everything I just said and said, amen, brother. In fact, I'll make a one-time donation to the local pregnancy resource center. You got me so passionate. But we'll have no spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion. 
In fact, many of our progressive brothers and sisters insist that because the Bible doesn't condemn abortion, Christians should neither. Ever heard that silly saying, Christians should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent? That is ridiculous. Because the Bible doesn't condemn forced female circumcision or the lynching of homosexuals. I guess the Bible's neutral on those matters. I guess there's no theological principles we can pull out from the soil of Scripture in order to develop spiritual clarity on those questions. Because the Bible's silent on it, right? And what would your progressive brothers and sisters probably tell you? Oh, Christian, let me explain it to you. You see, there's, like, there's timeless truths in Scripture, and we can like pull those out to develop spiritual clarity on those moral questions you just said that the Bible are silent on. Uh-huh. How would that not apply to the issue of abortion? God, through his word, has given us all we need to develop spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion. So what precepts or truths can we pull out from scripture to develop spiritual clarity for ourselves and the brothers and sisters in our life who say they're pro-life but recognize no spiritual obligation to intervene, to resist the evil of abortion? Well, here's a couple timeless principles from the scriptures. Let's go to the beginning of the human story, you know, to those two human beings, the only two human beings who weren't created in a womb. What does God say? Made human beings in his image, in his likeness. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. The Imago Dei. And we hear this so much, right? We forget what it means. We forget the incredible beauty of this truth. That the same God who stood before all time in perfect unity with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, decides to have a little fun. Takes the blank canvas of the universe and just starts painting a beautiful picture. Breathes out the Milky Way, laughs animals into existence, drops oceans, and says, wow, this is good. And then makes man and woman in his image, in his likeness, more infinitely valuable than any other form of life. And says, look what I made for you. My kids, look at this, go have fun with it. Here's a two million blank canvases. Be a steward of this. I made it for you. He says that you are more infinitely valuable than anything else he had created. So he made you a steward. The divine spark of the creator of the universe resides in your very soul, brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. So if every human being is created in the image of God and the science tells us that the unborn is a human being, then the unborn child is a image bearer of God. And this is why you got the prenatal John the Baptist doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room pregnant with the creator of the universe. This is why the psalmist says, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex, for knitting me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was woven together in the dark of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance before one of them came to be. Wow. This is why King David says, surely I was sinful from the moment of conception. I didn't know blobs of tissue could be sinful. Maybe it's because it's a human being, an image bearer of God. So the unborn is an image bearer of God. What else can we pull from scripture to develop spiritual clarity on abortion? What are the greatest commandments? Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is the unborn our neighbor? And if they are, why don't they deserve the same political protections as born neighbors that these woke pastors insist you have a moral obligation to vote to protect? Who is my neighbor? You know, that's not the first time that question's been asked. In the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, a very woke lawyer who knows his scriptures approaches Jesus. Do you remember his question? 
teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In short, how do I get to heaven? It's a good question. Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer nails his answer. Right? Nails it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You nailed it, bro. I'm impressed. You must have an MDiv. In order to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh, he probably just didn't know, right? Even though he just nailed all the law and the prophets and summarized them down to two commandments in a a stroke of theological brilliancy, he probably just forgot. He probably just slipped his mind, right? And who is my neighbor? You know what the lawyer's trying to do? He's trying to create categories of neighbor and non-neighbor in order to shirk himself of the responsibility of loving the neighbors that he doesn't want to, that are inconvenient to love. Friends, there is no other class of human beings today to whom the question is more frequently directed, are they really our neighbor, than the unborn image bearers in our midst, who bear the image of the prenatal Christ. And that question is most frequently coming from the pulpits of America. The lawyer is trying to figure out how he can get to heaven and still hate certain people. But he knew who his neighbor was. That's why his question was so offensive to Christ, right? Because he knew. He knew every human being was his neighbor and he was still trying to dehumanize a certain class of neighbors so he could shirk himself of responsibility of loving them. Our progressive brothers and sisters know that the unborn is a human, therefore they know that they are a neighbor but they are non-neighboring unborn image bearers in order to justify their political apathy. So we need only ask, if we're called to love our neighbor, what's the best way to love a neighbor that a country says it's legal to kill through all nine months of pregnancy and whose deaths you're forced to fund? Well, there'd be a lot of ways to love that neighbor, amen? And that's why there's many manifestations of ministry within the pro-life movement. But what would be the first and most important way to love a neighbor that it was legal to kill? I know, stop killing them. And re-enshrine their political protection and make consequences for killing image bearers of God, little babies who dwell in a womb we once came from and who dwell in a womb that Christ entered human history in. Oh, you can't say that, man. Come on, Seth. Don't demand that my orthodoxy evidence itself in orthopraxy, that my confession evidence itself in resistance, that my theological beliefs have the bearing on my political voice. We make it illegal to kill neighbors created in God's image. And we use the political tools in a constitutional republic where we, the people, have political power and use those tools to protect our preborn neighbors and the same woke pastors like Tim Keller and John Piper who insist that we can abdicate our political responsibility, which flows from our spiritual responsibility on the issue of abortion. Far from saying the same thing about our black brothers and sisters in the 1850s, they actually say the opposite. And they blast Christians in the 1850s as sinning, as sinning for just not voting because we recognize there was only one political party while imperfect and fallen that was reasonably situated to make it illegal to buy, enslave, and whip image bearers of God. So apparently the blood of unborn image bearers doesn't run deep enough or hot enough to warrant these pastors' political intervention and voice. 
They are not, as Hadley Arcus says, possessed of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Because if you were possessed of that sense, you would demand the same political protection and solutions to abortion as you would to slavery in the Holocaust. So moral and spiritual clarity, friends, must result in political clarity. So let's talk about that. You know, the other side has no qualms about being perceived as partisan through their work to attack the unborn and those who seek to protect them, pro-lifers. And we have a VP candidate who literally is trying and has tried to jail pro-lifers for exposing the illegal trafficking of dead baby body limbs on the black market while prostituting her attorney general duties to her political campaign donors, Planned Parenthood, who were giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to make sure Kamala Harris became senator. You think they're not going to attack you, you who seek to protect the unborn? They will. And we all know that if Biden wins, Kamala Harris will be declared president within a matter of months. This is, these are the threats facing our unborn neighbors. So what is our political response to this? We seek to protect them. So, Pastor Tim Keller, someone should tweet this to him. Let me show you exactly how the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who to or not to vote for. <laughs> Purely applied to this issue of abortion. The Bible commands us to hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Proverbs 24, 11. It says to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and ensure justice for those being crushed. Proverbs 31, 8. And it says to seek the good of the city where I sent you into exile. Oh, but Seth, you don't have an MDiv. You don't understand that that was said to the Israelites. We too are exiles in this land, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. So like the Israelites, we should seek the good of the city or the country in which we find ourselves, America, by being salt and light in the culture. And friends, it is a privilege and freedom bought with much blood that Christians in America are able to speak up for those who cannot within a political system that gives power to you to shape the culture. Yes, in an imperfect way, because we are imperfect, but in a way that restrains evil and promotes righteousness insofar as we can, given current political realities. To re refuse to use that form of speech for your witness to end state-sanctioned slaughter is itself wrong. And if Dietrich Bonhoeffer were here, he'd be standing behind my shoulder saying, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. If he said that in a situation where the church didn't have the political power in the constitutional republic, how much more is that true today where you're a steward of your political voice? That makes us more responsible than Dietrich was. Not less. But in defending the Christian's political freedom of conscience, Keller is tacitly admitting that your vote isn't all that important to God. He doesn't care. He just doesn't care. That's why you have liberty of conscience. You can vote for whatever political party you want, and you won't have to give an account to God. So what is the best way to love your neighbor if it's legal to intentionally kill that class of neighbors? The best way to love and speak up for that class of victims would firstly be to stop their slaughter and ensure they were protected. But the way we do that in America is through our vote our political voice. So can we accomplish loving neighbor, speaking up for them, holding back those staggering towards slaughter? Can we accomplish those commands in America by voting for the very party responsible for, committed to, and profiting off of the genocide in the first place? Of course not. Anyone with, anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex would tell you no. 
So yes, Pastor Tim, look at that. Wow, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who they cannot vote for because you cannot obey those commands in Scripture, which are quite clear. God also says he hates hands that shed innocent blood. You can't accomplish those commands by voting for the party that has declared wholesale slaughter and assault on those image bearers. Okay, well, can we tell our brothers and sisters who to vote for then? Well, Scripture tells us in James that whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if you have the ability to use your power and voice to end the genocide of innocence, then you should do that. That is the right thing to do. If we're commanded to speak up for those who cannot, but refuse to use the only voice we have that can actually stop the genocide in the first place, our political voice, then we are in sin. And anyone who tells you differently, simply ask them this. Would you defend Christians not using their political voice to end slavery in 1850? And they will tell you no. They will say, like Keller, that Christians then were sinning by opting out of the political process because not to speak is to speak but they don't say the same thing about the unborn. So whatever pro-life truths they pontificate or confess mean nothing if they refuse to protect those children. They have adopted what is called soft bigotry because they might acknowledge that the unborn is human and an image bearer, but then they say, some image bearers don't deserve legal protections. Some image bearers, we should not make it illegal to rip their limbs off their body and poison them through the abortion, then that's a form of soft bigotry. Because you're denying full personhood and protections under the law to a class of human beings that is politically risky to speak up for. So yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who to vote for. But then our opponents respond with certain political myths, okay? They start crafting these political myths that are very like viral friendly little phrases and they're used to shut you up They're used to siphon votes away from the only party reasonably situated to protect the unborn. The Republican Party, though, while imperfect, is the only one that can accomplish any type of protections for the unborn. How do I know this? Because the other party's platform says abortion through point of birth funded with your tax dollars. That's how I know that. So what political myths do they craft? I'm going to kind of go through two right now because guess what? After you make this whole case, after you listen to this sermon ten times and you memorize the whole script and you make this case to your brothers and sisters, you're gonna hear these political myths. This will be their go-to, this will be their response to you. After you lay out the moral, spiritual, and political clarity for the unborn, they'll say, yeah, but you're not really pro-life unless you support open borders, universal healthcare, universal basic income, you fight poverty and sex trafficking, say America's systemically racist root and branch, and then maybe I'll accept your pro-life credentials. And too many pro-lifers out of a desire to avoid accusations of hypocrisy or apathy, they will accept this premise. These people have adopted what is now called the whole life perspective. I'm not pro-life, I'm whole life. And usually what that means is adopting a bunch of leftist values or virtues that they insinuate pro-lifers must hold and advocate for in order for their pro-life credentials to be adequate. But how does it follow that because the pro-life movement opposes intentionally killing innocent human beings in the womb and seeks to protect them through legislation, that we must also adopt personal responsibility to to end a whole other variety of societal ills? We as Christians have broad and inclusive duties in our personal lives to love our neighbors, amen? That's our commandment from the creator of the universe. But it doesn't follow that a movement whose entire goal is to end the genocide of baby image bearers, must expand their beliefs to apply it to more than just abortion. 
No other movement gets this critique, by the way. Did you know that? Was Oscar Schindler not really anti-Holocaust because he only focused his energy and wealth on saving Jews and didn't provide housing and universal health care for them afterwards? I guess the American Cancer Society is not really anti-cancer because those bigots only try to solve one form of disease and not many. What do you have against people with diseases that aren't cancer? Excuse me? I guess abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass and you know, even the abolitionist president, Abraham Lincoln, I guess they weren't really anti-slavery, actually, because they only focused all their time on energy on abolishing one form of evil. <laughs> Bigots. Ridiculous. We think it's a good thing to have movements with a narrowly focused goal because they increase the likelihood that they'll achieve that goal. He who fights everywhere fights nowhere. So what am I supposed to do? Fight sex trafficking on Monday, poverty on Tuesday, equal pay on Wednesday, universal health care on Thursday, universal basic income on Friday, abortion on Saturday, sex trafficking on Sunday, and try to squeeze in some family time and devotions in between. This is scandalous. No other movement gets levied with this accusation except pro-lifers. So the people who tell you this, you know what they're trying to do? Siphon votes away from the only political party reasonably situated to end abortion and create political confusion, which will lead to apathy so that we won't end abortion. People who demand that pro-lifers must apply their beliefs to more than just abortion are not on our side. Okay, but then they say this one. You ready for this one? Don't be a single-issue voter. You silly, silly pro-lifers creating a moral hierarchy of sins. Who do you think you are, the Holy Spirit? Why do you elevate abortion in a moral hierarchy? You know, actually, when you approach the polls to vote, you should actually hold abortion on the same level playing field as um, open borders and universal health care and um, stealing from you to end poverty. And you have to support all of these. They're all really the same, remember? John Piper says pride is really just morally equivalent to killing a million image bearers a year. Don't create hierarchies of sin. They're all the same. Don't be a single-issue voter. Would you say the same thing about slavery? Would you critique Abraham Lincoln of making too much of slavery and treating it as a litmus test of the republic? Because it called into question the founding ideals of the republic, which is that all men are created equal. And if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Oh, Abraham Lincoln, creating moral hierarchies of sin. So actually, if you were really woke, you would vote for the Democratic Party of the 1850s, you know, the party of slavery and the KKK domestic terrorist arm, because even though they were enslaving human beings and promising to protect that institution, you know, they were actually supporting, like, better health care and universal minimum wage for middle-class white people who weren't rich enough to buy human beings and treat them like cattle. So vote for the Democratic Party, because they'll help increase quality of life outside the womb by addressing a broader range of life issues. Whoa, dude, if you say that, you're sick, and I don't trust you with political power. Sacrificing savable babies in order to improve quality of life for those who weren't killed in the womb. Single-issue voting. Of course we should be a single-issue voter when 63 million human beings have been killed without proper justification. So the selective application of the single-issue voting critique reveals that our critics and some pro-lifers who claim to be our allies either don't believe the unborn to be fully human, or they do, but they don't think that the genocide of those babies is serious enough to justify voting single issue, then you are not our friend. You're not a friend of unborn children and you're not a friend of the pro-life movement. You're an enemy of the unborn because you're telling people not to vote for life because there's a lot of other issues. There is no other class of human beings today that it is legal to kill. 
It's just the unborn. So, of course, we should vote single issue. Why? Because the right to life is the most fundamental right. The right to liberty and pursuit of happiness don't mean much if you can be killed in the womb. And as long as our country continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, our own rights will constantly be endangered by modern jurists and a ruling class whose jurisprudence is completely foreign to that first generation of judges. By ignoring the natural right to life that all human beings have, we should not be surprised when that government ignores every other right that flows from the first and most important of all rights. And you're watching it play out in real time. Governors and mayors with their draconian policies ignoring the natural right to liberty and property. No, we, are, we will not tell the police to protect your property. No, we will not allow you to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment. No, we will not allow you to gather with more than three family members for more than two hours for your Thanksgiving. Thank you very much, Kendall Newsom. No, you can't do that. Oh, I wonder why they're ignoring the natural right to liberty and property. I wonder why. Maybe because they called into question the first and most important of all rights upon which this constitutional republic was built, which was life. This was why Lincoln blasted the racists and the party of slavery. This was why Abraham Lincoln made too much of slavery by treating it as a litmus test of the republic. Because it was deteriorating the very premises that this republic was built upon. If political individuals, politicians, and a party will not respect the right of you to not be killed, they will ignore all of your other rights, make no mistake about it. And for our progressive brothers and sisters who refuse to speak out against or vote against the genocide of baby image bears, I'm sorry, but I don't trust you on any other moral issue. Because if you can't get the right to life right, you're going to get all of the rest of them wrong. So what are the threats to the pre-born and to the pro-lifers who seek to protect them? I will quote verbatim from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They will codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. They will institute pre-clearance guidelines so pro-life states that want to pass pro-life laws are prevented from doing so. They will add four more Supreme Court justices to the Supreme Court with the jurisprudence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They will abolish the filibuster so those pesky pro-life Republicans can't block them from passing radical abortion legislation. They will abolish the Hyde Amendment, which keeps federal dollars from funding abortion through Medicaid reimbursements and is responsible for saving over two million babies since it was passed. They will increase the tax funding to Planned Parenthood by the millions. Unborn children will be rounded up for slaughter like no other time in American history and the Joe Biden-Kamala Harris political ticket is to the unborn what Hitler was to the Jews. It is a moral wrong to vote for a party who makes it part of their platform to expand the slaughter of innocent unborn image bearers. Make no mistake about it. Amen. You guys get it. You're off the bench. I love it. And until the church takes back their spiritual obligation to be salt and light in the culture and to speak up for the unborn, I am not sure that abortion will ever end, friends. Until the church decides that it is time to put an end to the genocide of baby image bearers, I am not convinced that it will come to an end. So you were on the front lines. Listen, you want to know how you would have responded to slavery in the 1850s? You want a litmus test as to whether you would have been an abolitionist, a racist, or politically neutral? It's what you're doing on abortion today. How you respond to our genocide is how you would have responded to slavery then or the Holocaust in Germany. So what do we do? We love our unborn neighbors. 
Here are four quick things you can do. Your action points, these are your marching orders. Firstly, I want you to take personal responsibility to get 10 people to the polls, particularly for local and congressional. Because barring an act of God in which this state flips red, um, we need to work towards that by getting pro-life candidates elected in local and congressional seats. So take personal responsibility to convince your friends and family members to vote for life. Um, or persuade them out of their political apathy to vote for life. Secondly, learn how to persuasively and graciously communicate your pro-life views. Listen, I know you're thinking like, holy fire hose of information. I'm not going to remember all of this. <laughs> so listen, you can subscribe to my podcast. It's called Unaborted with Seth Gruber. I've actually been releasing an episode a day leading up to the election. So I, th I think I did one Friday, Saturday, today, and then tomorrow. And then usually it's one or two a week. But this is all for you. I create this for you. It's like a pro-life college. It's like you're going to get so developed in a pro-life ethic to defend life, okay? Um, and then you can go to my website, sethgruber.com, and sign up for my newsletter. Um, thirdly, sign up as a sidewalk counselor or volunteer with a pro-life ministry, um, particularly if this is part of your story. I didn't get as much time to address this, but if this is part of your story and you've had an abortion, listen, Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. And if you want evidence of this, look to King David, a man playing peeping Tom rather than leading his army, impregnating women, and then murdering their husbands, okay? A man after God's own heart. Yeah, I think God can use anyone, Okay. But after his baby dies and the prophet Nathan confronts David regarding his sin, after briefly justifying it, David repents, God renews him, calls him a man after his own heart. But his baby died. And he said, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. If you accept the gospel of grace and, and turn from your sin of abortion, if you haven't experienced healing already, Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. It does not blacklist you from the grace of God. In fact, he's eager to pour out his grace on you. And like David, you're going to see your baby in heaven again one day, and they're seated on the lap of Jesus waiting to welcome you into eternal glory. And that hope is only available to the Christian. So there's a ministry here. There's a ministry here called Healing Hands, okay, that works with the local pregnancy resource center and we'll love to welcome you into that gospel embrace and walk you through a journey of healing if you need that because God wants to use you to help where you used to hurt and he wants to turn your ashes into beauty. So I want you to be the ones on the front lines who are adopting personal responsibility to stand outside of abortion clinics. If you want to start and add to the pro-life ministry here and do even more, I'll put you in touch with my friends at Love Life who are discipling up local Christians in local churches all around the country to put a Christian witness outside every abortion clinic in the nation. Can you imagine what that that would do. We as the church could end abortion in a matter of years if Christians would adopt personal responsibility to save lives. So if you want to do that, get in touch with me. We'll put you in touch with that organization. And lastly, support pro-life organizations. Pregnancy resource centers. It is a scandal on the soul of the church that pregnancy resource centers are largely still underfunded and understaffed. That is scandalous. They're the ones in the ditches on the front lines of this fight with women at the moment that they choose life or death. And the church says, we gave the pregnancy resource center director five minutes once a year. That's pathetic. And it's pathetic that you're not giving of your tithing to local pro-life organizations. So praise God that this church does that. Do that in your personal life. And if you want to support me to articulate these ideas to young people before they get lost in leftist ideology, then you can support my work to get this type of content all around the country through live speaking gigs. You can text BABIES to 474747. Text BABIES to 474747. Okay, I want to leave you with this. We are in a distinct place in human history, friends. But the battle we face is actually one that our spiritual forefathers faced before us. And I've alluded to Bonhoeffer, I've alluded to Oscar Schindler, but I want to tell you Oscar Schindler's story. If you haven't seen the film or you haven't read the book, I'm afraid this is a bit of a spoiler. But Oscar Schindler was a very rich entrepreneur and businessman in Nazi Germany. He was actually a member of the Nazi party, okay? But God 
grabbed his heart and pricked his conscience, and he become, began to become horrified at the atrocities being committed against his Jewish brothers and sisters. So what did Oskar Schindler do? He began to buy Jews off of the Nazi death camp list with his great wealth and employ them in his factory in order to hide them from the Nazis. It's estimated that because of his personal sacrifices, over 1,000 Jews were saved from a holocaust. Do you know how many generations and new human beings that turned into? Because of one man's sacrifices? At the end of the movie, he's standing surrounded by hundreds of men and women who owe him their very lives. And Schindler's broke because he exhausted all of his money to save image bearers from a genocide. And the announcement rings out that the war is won, the Allied troops have won, and Oscar Schindler stands there while his brothers and sisters are celebrating and he just begins to weep. And his friend comes up to him and says, my brother, what is wrong? And he says, I could have saved one more. And he looks at his golden pin that identifies him as a member of the Nazi party and he says, my pin, my pin, this is gold. I could have sold this. I could have saved one more. And his friend says, no, brother, brother, these people are alive today because of your sacrifices. But then he looks at his fancy car, one of the last items to his name, and he says, my car? My car? Why did I keep that? I could have sold that and saved ten more. I could have saved one more. Brothers and sisters, this is coming from a man who went to the wall to love his neighbor, who far from questioning who his neighbor was, exhausted his entire wealth to save bleeding victims and neighbors created in the image of God. The question that echoes through human history from his time to our time today is this, do we take our Holocaust in 2020 as seriously as Oscar Schindler took his? Because if we do, then ladies and gentlemen, I need your pro-life confession to prove itself through resistance and action. Because I believe one day when we stand before God, we're going to give a personal account to what we did to save image bearers from abortion. And I pray that we may say with William Wilberforce, let it not be said of me that I was quiet when they needed me. The babies are waiting for us to intervene. God is waiting and the world is watching you. Do you want to have a good witness to Christ? Do you want to have a good witness to the world? It's by acting to protect God's most precious, innocent, and vulnerable image bearers, unborn babies, in a womb that Christ entered human history in. So we're going to have communion together now. You know, Peter Kreft, a Catholic philosopher, once said that abortion is actually the Antichrist's demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words, this is my body, but with the blasphemous opposite meaning. Rather than saying, this is my body, take and eat in remembrance of me, the enemies of God turn that on their head and say, I am God, this is my body, to decide who lives and who dies. But Christ entered human history in a womb and put on fetal flesh. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tested in every way that we were, yet without sin. But do you know when he identified with you? From the womb. Dwelling in a womb that he knit together before he entered it. To identify with you at your most vulnerable stage. Christ is preeminent in all things.
but he was preeminent from the moment he was a fetus, from the moment he was an unborn child, and then allowed his flesh to be ripped off his body while our opponents insist that doing that to, to other image bearers is reproductive health care. And he allowed that to happen to him so that he could extend a gospel of salvation to you for those of us who would just turn and repent. So if this is part of your story, or if it's not, all of us have failed to adequately love our neighbor the way that the law of God commands. Whether you've had an abortion or not, we have not loved our neighbor the way that scripture demands. But Christ has loved us perfectly. He's our advocate. He spoke up for you. First John 2 says that, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. What's an advocate? Someone who speaks up for someone else. So how can we not speak up for unborn image bearers and save them from immediate physical death when we've been spoken up for and saved from eternal death? We seek to save unborn children and love their mothers and fathers because we have been loved by Christ. Love as I have loved you. The pro-life positioning of the heart is simply the correct response of the heart to the gospel. The recognition that I have been lavishly loved in a way that I don't deserve. And so I have an obligation to love those who are being victimized by evil. Listen, the vote is just where it begins. Our vote is just where this begins. Our duty to love our neighbor goes far beyond our vote, but it's the absolute minimum that we're required to do to restore their legal protections as babies created in the image of the prenatal Christ. So your pastors, your team here would love to pray with you if this is part of your story. And if it's not, let's just corporately rep repent for not doing enough to love our unborn neighbors and rise and hit that beach. Get off the bench, put our boots on the ground. Promote righteousness the only institution predisposed to protect these children from immediate death and to proclaim the eternal salvation that's only available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear that and receive that. This is his body. Take and eat, take and drink in remembrance of him and go out there and give him heaven. Thank you.